Good morning. Please stand with me at the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this is the word of the Lord. As you are sitting, let's pray. Father, Jesus said the words that where I go, I prepare a place for you. We believe those words to be true, even though we embrace them from afar. Lord, bless our time in your word this morning. Give us minds to understand, hearts to delight in what we understand, and a will to embrace it. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we continue through Hebrews this morning, we have to recognize and admit something that we all know and feel, that we live in this space between promises given and promises yet realized, promises given and promises yet realized, things that God has said, God has done, that God has committed to, that we've seen come to pass, and yet aspects of it that we've not yet seen come to pass. We live in a space that, because of this and many other factors, is often confusing. Asking questions like, what promises has God made? Probably a good and fair place to start. Maybe some of us ask the question, why doesn't God seem to be keeping his promises? Maybe you don't ask those, that question with quite the explicit rhetoric, but maybe in your demeanor, you live as though you question, why has God not yet fulfilled this? You've heard me say before, living with some sort of low-grade fever or annoyance could be an indicator that you're frustrated with God's lack or seemingly lack of keeping his promises from your perspective. For some of us, we should ask the question, do I even care if God has made any promises or that he's keeping them or such? Then there's the question of, well, which way am I actually going? There's clearly a directional aspect to this passage, a, a journeying and a, uh, which way he's headed and which way his eyes are headed. So we have to ask the question of, uh, well, which way am I actually going? Am I going forward towards the celestial city? Or am I going backward? Am I making progress? Or am I going backwards? Am I digressing? I think some of us have to ask the question, too, do I think I'm going forward when I'm actually going backwards, but I think I'm going forward simply because I've turned around. I'm facing forward, 
when actually headed backwards. And Hebrews has been telling us over and over and over again, the idea of perseverance is a primary theme in the book of Hebrews. Persevere, persevere. Only those who persevere in faith till the end will see the glories of heaven. Only those who die in faith will see the celestial city. That's what he says there in verse 13. These all died in faith. More on that in a bit. But those who die in faith, faith that is alive, will see this better country, will see this heavenly place, will see the celestial city, to use Pilgrim's Progress language. The reality is, is there will be no one in that city who dies with dead faith or faith that was once alive or faith they thought was once alive. But they die, but they die with faith or in faith. The implication there is faith that is alive. So we live in this space between promises given, promises yet to be realized. We're being told to persevere, persevere. We've given, been given lots of help in persevering, just how we will do that. Today's sermon is much the same. How will we die in faith? How do we persevere? He answers this question, giving us yet another facet of that diamond. The first is this. If we were to persevere, you must greet the promises from afar. You must learn to greet God's promises from afar. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. Listen to this. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar. Now, a quick reminder of what faith is. I'd encourage you to go back and re-listen to the first sermon on this chapter. But we talked about like four aspects of faith. That's a substance. Faith is faith is in is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is foundational, meaning the word itself means under, with the word for standing. That it's a confidence, it's an assurance. Faith is a guarantee and an attestation, if you will, to the future. Practically put, what you cannot feel with your hands, you can still hold by faith, even to the extent at which it is its very presence is as good as yours. Now here, he says, they all died in faith. What's he mean? They had all persevered in faith till the end. Again, imagine that. It sounds like something that's been said quite a few times already in the book of Hebrews. What you see pictured here over and over again, particularly in chapter 11, is you see the picture of the slow, steady, plodding work of faith. 
Let me repeat that again because we're in the fast, give it all to me now. It's the slow, steady, plotting, consistent work of faith. Hammer swing after hammer swing. Wooden pin after wooden pin. Step after step after step after step. One at a time. One faithful, mundane moment after the next. One moment of keeping your hand on the plow to one moment keeping your hand on the plow. They all died in faith. They persevered till the end. There's no magical formula to their perseverance. There's no grand miracles in all of their persevering to the end. One steady moment after the next steady moment in the midst of very adverse circumstances, right? Noah, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, keeping the hand of the plow. You see, they had received a great deal, but they had not received it all yet. God had surely brought them a great distance. I mean, thinking about Abraham and the physical, geographical distance of Abraham walking now finally with his clan into the promised land. Or Noah, after 120 years of hammer swing after hammer swing, the great distance, God had surely kept them and protected them. God was keeping his promises. But not all of it had been delivered just yet. I want us to look at a couple key phrases in this passage. It says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So you have the fact that God's made promises. He's delivered some of it, but not all of it. So they're in between those two things as I began today's sermon. And then it says, but they seen them and greeted them from afar. These things promised. Now, the order here matters. Seen and then greeted. And I'm going to break those two words up into three things. The first thing being seen, and then we're going to break greeted up into two aspects. Two aspects to that word. But the order here matters. First of all, they seen. See, faith sees first with an understanding. Faith sees first with an understanding. Very simply, one must know the truth and understand it first. It must be contemplated and mentally grasped first. Let me give you a side note here. What this also means is that someone who doesn't grow in understanding will have a faith that never grows as well. In order for faith to grow, understanding as a first step must grow. And a faith that never grows, according to Hebrews, is a faith that will likely die, just to put it lightly. Faith sees first with an understanding. There's an understanding component. 
So they saw the promise. I mean, they, they understood God's promise. Abraham understood God's promises. It doesn't necessarily mean he understood every facet or every aspect or exactly what it's going to look like. But he first saw it. I mean, he first understood it. I mean, Noah understood. Look, if I don't build a boat, I'm going to die. But God's going to save me and my family if I build a boat. He understood it. He had to understand at least that much. He understood it. Faith sees with an understanding. Now, the idea of greeted has two aspects to it. The first one is this, greeted, meaning means to look forward to something with happiness. Like you, don't, we don't, you don't begrudgingly greet someone. That's the idea here. Like the idea of greeting is like a, like a, a happy anticipation and excitement. Like, yes, I'm glad you're here. Lord willing, you did that when you shook each other's hands just a few minutes ago. See, they were persuaded in the heart what they understood. There was a delight in it. It wasn't a begrudging understanding. It wasn't an an indifferent understanding. It wasn't just a mental assent, something that they went, okay, yep, that's what God said. Cool, moving on. But it was a, wow, God said that. That's a good thing. I want that. There's a longing for it. So when they greeted this thing they understood from afar, they longed for it. I mean, who would not long for salvation through a flood? Who would not long for a land that God would give to you personally? They greeted this from afar. Who would not long to have a child that God would bless the world through? They longed for these things. So much so, they had a willingness to leave behind the other things. See, when you look at this thing from afar, it is, it is the greater treasure than that which you would be leaving behind. Why else would you leave one land to go to the, to the next unless you thought the treasure you could have there is worth more than the treasure you'd be leaving. Why else would Abraham leave? Why else would Noah give up 120 years of his life? There was a greater treasure on the other side of the ark and through the ark. The second aspect of greeted would be to embrace it by the will. So not just, uh, ooh, I have, I have happy thoughts about that thing, but I want it. I want, I'm going to embrace it. Right? Remember, back to the idea of faith. It's an embracing something as if it's yours. So what he says, they greeted it from afar. They embraced it as though this is mine. I want that. We're going to walk toward it which is key. We're going to walk towards it. I think we tend to think as Christians, this is a side note, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, that faith is just redemption so I can get to heaven, and I'm, I'm just going to sit here until I get there someday. And that's, that's, that's all there is to faith. But faith is a, 
God's promised this, and the way to get there is through the blood, and then living out that blood as I walk towards it. As I'm walking towards it, that requires faith, and that is faith being worked out. You see, they embraced it. So now that you have an understanding to some basic measure, and then you're persuaded of it in your heart, it's a happy that I want that. Now you make a willful choosing. I'm going to believe that. So faith sees with an understanding. Faith greets it with happiness and delight. And faith embraces it, grabs a hold of it. This is mine. I want it by God's grace. Spurgeon said this, faith has such long arms that it embraced them. Faith has long arms. So then here's the question, how do we see and greet God's promises from afar? The reality is we live in between these promises made and promises yet realized, right? They're similarly, like Abraham, like Noah, they're, they're in the distance. There's aspects of the promise that has been fulfilled, looking back at the cross and Christ and the resurrection and all of that, but there are still yet things to be fulfilled. How do we see and greet those things from afar? First of all, you have to embrace them from afar, and I'm going to expand on that. You've got to embrace the promises from afar. What I mean is, you've got to understand them, you've got to delight in them, and embrace them willfully. But here's the key, and this is where it's hard for us. You have to do that without them being right in front of your nose. And I think that's the challenge for us as Christians, particularly in our current culture and I don't, I don't mean culture as in like worldly bad, you know, evil culture. I just mean the way a lot of us have been raised, the way a lot of us think about life. You've got to embrace, you got to understand them, delight in them, and embrace them willfully without it being right in front of your face. Think about how many things in your life are hard for you to believe, hard for you to act on without it being right in front of your face. You know, I guess I can refer to myself in some, some cases as a farmer. Um, I say that term lightly, uh, so it's not be offensive to, you know, farmers with more cattle. But uh, <clears throat> You know, when you, when you plant a field or when you, when you give birth, not you give birth, but when your cows give birth, and you await the slaughter date. There's so much that is not right in front of your nose. When you put that seed in the ground, the harvest is not right in front of your nose. It takes months for that harvest to come. When a cow is bred, it takes nine months for that harvest to come, and then 18 months before the slaughter harvest to come, before beef can be put on your table. I mean, that's over two years. It's not right in front of your nose. You have to act on something. You have to understand something. You have to delight in it, think this is a good thing. 
and you have to embrace it and act on it without it being right in front of your nose. All without it being right in front of This is hard for us. We are used to wanting something and then immediately going to get it. I mean, just think about how many fruits and vegetables that are available to us year-round that just a number of decades ago, you had to wait for it to be in season. Now you got to wait for it to be in season to actually taste good. So you eat the garbage because you just want grapes, you know, when it's not season for grapes. Ask my wife. It's hard for us. We're used to getting exactly what we want, the way we want it, when we want it. And when we don't, we sulk, we get depressed, we scheme until we can make it happen, or we move on to something else that has captured our attention and that we can get. Listen, if you don't know the habit and discipline of patiently waiting while genuinely hopeful for its accomplishment, then you're really going to struggle here. Let me say that again. If you don't know the habit and discipline of patiently waiting while genuinely hopeful for its accomplishment, then you are going to struggle here. What you need is, I'll call today at least, a hopeful and anticipating contentment. A hopeful yet expectant contentment. A holy, expecting contentment. Expecting God's promises to be realized while content in the measure of its already being fulfilled. An expectation, a looking forward, eyes looking forward, while content with the extent to which they've been fulfilled thus far. That's hard to do. Especially when the things yet fulfilled, we're used to just grabbing it as soon as soon as we can right like grabbing it making things happen that's how you greet from afar you're content with what's right in front of you yet you're hopeful and expectant of what's to come so much so again that it's as if those things are in your hands right now that's the measure of expectation and hopefulness that we have now here's the question how do, you con- how do you kindle a hopeful and anticipating contentment? How do you do that? We'll spend a few, few minutes here. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9, I think, gives us this answer. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. How do you, we live in the middle between these two things, how do you foster a hopeful and anticipating contentment? Beginning in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Uh, listen, to the, uh, listen uh, uh, we're going to work through that list, but these next verse, uh, two verses right here are key. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Connect that with faith, right? For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. If you're not connecting the dots, this is the exact opposite of being able to greet God's promises from afar. That's the juxtaposition. Those briefly work through 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. He says virtue, adding to virtue knowledge, adding to its self-control, to its steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now hang on a second. That sounds a lot like work. Sounds a lot like work, like hard work, doesn't it? I've got to go live in a way, adding virtue to faith and knowledge to virtue and self-control to knowledge and so on. Listen, I can't tell you how many counseling sessions, formal and informal, I've been in where when work in these things slips, faith slips. It is a one-to-one. It's really that easy as well. And so what he's saying is this, to, to make this clear. A person without supplemented faith is so nearsighted that he is blind. A couple things I want you to not miss. Nearsighted, in case you don't, you're confused. Nearsighted, farsighted, you know, I'll clear that up for you. Nearsighted means you can only see what's in front of you, and the items, as they progress further away from you, are harder for you to discern. I am nearsighted. I wear glasses so that right now I can make out your faces, right? I could uh, take them off and your faces would be blurry. And I couldn't tell if you were confused or happy or mad or what are those, are those. But I could read my Bible just fine. I could see what's in front of me. Nearsighted. I mean, you can only see what's in front of you. He chooses nearsighted on purpose. These people that don't have supplemented faith can only see what's in front of them. And then second, don't miss the second aspect, they're so nearsighted that you can't see anything except that which is in front of your face, so much so that you are blind. But can you see the picture? The picture is this, how can you, or how are you going to embrace from afar, if we live in between, God's promises realized, God's promises yet realized, How are you going to live in between and persevere if greeting from afar is necessary for perseverance, if you can't see any further than the promises made and kept that are right in front of you? You won't. This person is so nearsighted that he is blind. So how do you teach yourself, your kids, your family, your neighbor to see past their nose? It's simple. You supplement or add to your faith these things. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. You add the, you supplement, you grow in these things. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but virtue 
The idea here is moral goodness or excellence. To me, you're pursuing holiness. Like you're mindfully pursuing to live by faith in the one who made you and to live according to the one who made you and saved you and redeemed you. To live like him. Adding to virtue, knowledge. Again, you can't delight and you can't willfully embrace that which you don't first know. Faith must be supplemented with knowledge over and over and over. Think of that as the hammer swing over and over and over again. You can't have faith in something you don't know. On the flip side, the more you know of God, the more you have to place faith in. The more, the more bricks there are on the foundation for you to stand upon. Next, self-control. Very practically, discipline. Self-control. I'll put it uh, kind of anecdotally. If all you do is get what you want when you want it, then how will you learn self-control? If all you do is give your kids what they want when they want it, how are they going to learn self-control? For little kids, it begins with just self-control of their bodies. Don't underestimate the value of just teaching them self-control over their bodies. Then you have something to talk about when it comes to self-control of their emotions or self-control of their desires. Right? Self-control. From its steadfastness. Steadfastness. I would say, define it this way, a steady pace in the same direction over a long period of time. Steady pace in the same direction over a long period of time. Steadfastness, right? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. I mean, again, some of us have a hard time maintaining a habit for more than a week. But here we're called to be steadfast. We're to supplement faith with steadfastness. That's all over our lives. Like, listen, if I know we talk a lot about like um, habits. Those tend to be habits are centered around things like eating well, working out, those kind of things. Don't underestimate the value of that. It's not that those things save, but if you practice steadfastness, you practice self-control in those areas, then Lord willing, that will translate in to practicing self-control and steadfastness in things like desires, emotions, and so on. Godliness, again, I think similar here to virtue. Next, brotherly affection. You want a faith that can see past your nose, that's what this list is helping us get to, then brotherly affection, love for the brethren will supplement your faith. Don't underestimate the power of loving the body of Christ. That's the point. Working hard to live, to love the body of Christ 
will supplement your faith. And here's, remember, a faith that's not supplemented is so nearsighted that it is blind. And a faith that is so nearsighted that's blind cannot grasp or embrace the promises from afar. And what happens to a faith that can't embrace the promises from afar? It's a faith that shrivels up and dies. That's what's at stake. The inverse is those who don't love the body of Christ have not supplemented their faith, and therefore they have so nearsighted, they are so nearsighted that they are blind. But on the flip side, a person who is walking out brotherly affection, loving the body of Christ, is supplementing their faith such that they will be enabled to see past their nose that they can embrace God's promises from afar, from a distance. Lastly, love. Similarly, love, affection for others, for God. So you might be asking, so are you telling me that my faith can grow if I work hard on these things? Yeah, it's ultimately a gift of God still, and His grace to even work these things out is a gift. But God's not made life that is just some, all of it's just some, some weird mystery, and we just are like trying to figure out what the next magical potion is. Like, I think we overcomplicate the Christian life often. Listen, if you need to grow in faith, which we all do, Pursue virtue, pursue knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Next sub-point here. So how do we, the last one was how do we see and greet them from afar? The next thing I want you to see in this passage, kind of shifting gears here just a bit, is that it's a warning to us in how we define God's promises. It's a warning for us to be careful in how we define God's promises. Right? Because what you have, the picture you have, is they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. God never said that his promises would be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. Not all of them. God never said that he would give Abraham streets of gold. God never said that Abraham wouldn't face any obstacles or derision. God never said that he wouldn't have terrible circumstances. He never told Moses that there wouldn't be giants in the land. He never told Sarah that that she wouldn't have to wait years and years and years. God did not give a time frame for his promise. I wonder how much of our disappointment or discouragement with God is because we're holding him to a promise that he's not made you. And you've got to be careful, because like the general promise, maybe he made it, 
but the way he's going to fulfill it or the timing of his fulfillment of it or the exact shade of which it's going to look. And you're holding God to that. And so you're discouraged. He never promised you that. You got to ask the question, is the expectation that I'm holding over God's head, has he bound himself to that expectation or are you binding him to that expectation? And newsflash, you and I don't have the power to bind God to our expectations. That does not go well for you and I. (laughs) Parenting, some examples. God has not promised that all of our children without exception will be redeemed. God has promised, though, that if we will teach our kids God's word, that we should have a general expectation that they will be redeemed. A hopefulness. An expectation. How about in marriage? God has not promised us that we will all have incredible marriages. But God has promised that if both spouses will love and follow God's word, that their marriage will picture Christ and his church and all the delight that comes from that. How about in your vocation? God has not promised any of us mass amounts of money or esteem in our vocations. But God has promised that if we will keep our hand to the plow and we'll keep a sword in the other hand, that we will lay one brick of his kingdom at a time. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. He's promised you that. If we're going to persevere, we must learn how to embrace God's promises from afar. Next, you must keep your eyes on what's ahead then. So we talked about how to, how to greet from afar, but you must keep your eyes on what's ahead. you got to keep shaking the hand of God's future promise. It's another tattoo for you. Hebrews 11, 13, second part through 15. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. I love this phrase. But first, we must leave our home. We must first leave our home. If you're going to keep your eyes on the what's ahead, you must first leave your home. It's a forsaking of former allegiance. That's the picture. A forsaking of former allegiance. This is very akin to Jesus in Matthew 6 where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. If your treasure is in your former home, you will have plenty of opportunity to return. That that was his point here. Moses had plenty, had 120 years to return to his former home. Abraham had plenty of years to return to his former home. But that's not where his heart was. That's not where his eyes were at. He didn't want to shake the hand of his former land. He kept his hand shaking what was to come. When Abraham left, he wasn't thinking about himself in terms of where he had come from, but he was thinking of himself now in terms of where he was headed. That's what defined Abraham now. 
That's what defined Noah. That's why it didn't matter what the idiot said about him. Because that didn't define Noah. What defined Noah was, I'm going to be alive after the flood comes. I'm going to be alive because God's going to shut the door and keep my family. Who cares what they say? That's what defined Noah. That's what defined Moses. That's what defined Abraham. But what often defines our identity? What often defines you, your family background? You can leave that land behind. Your skin color? I mean, our world wants to define everything by skin color right now. Your ethnicity? Social class? How much power you have? Politics? Your vocation? Sports? If they are your source of your identity and your desire, then they are still your home. That is still your home. And the reality is this, your old allegiances will hold you back and discourage you from a true journey in faith before the Lord. Caution towards parents here. You've got to be ever so careful that what you train your kids and how you train your kids, that you're not unintentionally training them to think that the land you are supposed to be coming from is where your allegiance still lies. You've got to look at your household, mom and dad, and say, where in my household am I training my kids to live like we still belong in Egypt with the pagans? And we still live in that old land back there. Our allegiance is still there. The reality is this, we cannot advance to the heavenly place God has called us if we will not leave behind our allegiance to this place. So we must first leave our home. Again, we're talking about keeping our eyes on what's ahead. You must first leave your home. Next, you must accept your status. You're going to keep your eyes on what's ahead. You must accept the reality of your status, strangers and exiles. Your free time this week, go read Genesis 23, particularly verse 4. Let me summarize for you. If you are a Christian, you in this world are an outsider. Listen, let me drill in here. The idea of being strangers and exiles is not simply someone who's from another place. This was not, Sarah and I visited some friends in Michigan this past week. We were in their house. We're not just simply people from another place. What he means here 
is that you are an outsider, someone who doesn't belong. Someone who doesn't belong, that's who you are. Someone who doesn't fit in. You stand out like a sore thumb, or at least you should. Let me ask you, do you stick out like a sore thumb? Like in your workplace, in your neighbors, with your friends, do you stick out like a sore thumb? And let me ask this question, why do we want to fit in so bad? I think we've seen this for the past number of decades with, as someone would call, evangelifish, evangelicals. They just want to fit in so bad. Why? Why do we, too, want to be liked by our pagan friends so much? I mean, seriously. I, I struggle with this, too. I, I'm not just preaching to the choir. Like, wh- why do I want that so bad? Why am I tempted? Why do we want their approval? Or maybe you don't necessarily want their approval, but why do we want them to leave us alone? Why do you want them to just leave us alone? I mean, I wrote in my notes, are you even a Christian if you haven't had at least one single-star review from a pagan? Listen, we should wear those things like a badge of honor. Now, listen, let me, let me help press this point in a little further. <clears throat> Pagans hate God, right? They hate God. We can at least agree on that. Let me put this in perspective. If you were a German in Germany in World War II, are you the guy trying to fit in with Hitler and his regime? You that guy or that girl? Just trying to get their approval? Just trying to get their acceptance? Are you the guy trying to make sure they like you, that you're winsome enough? Just trying to maintain the relationship? Are you the guy trying to make sure that you don't say anything that would get you a bad review? Is that you? Listen, it's no different. It's no different than being a German in Germany where Hitler is the ruler. Then why are you and I, why, do we, why are we so tempted to try and fit in with this regime? Why? Why are we trying to blend in with them? Trying to be a chameleon with them? Trying to be so winsome that they still like you? Why? We're outsiders. Our allegiance doesn't belong to them anymore. Our allegiance is to a land that's coming. That's the approval that you want. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come dwell with me. That's the review you want. Listen, if you're a Christian, it's going to be a five-star all day long. Why? Because Jesus. Listen, you're an outsider. They don't want you, but God does. So much so that 
He's making a home for you. A city that's to come. Next, if you're going to keep your eyes on what's ahead, there is no going back. There can be no going back. That can't even be an option in your head. When that moment enters your mind, you've got to say no. What does that look like? The very practical moments where you're tempted to do anything that would resemble allegiance to the land that you've come from, you say no. Say no. That's not, no, there is no option of going back. In this passage, they're clearly no longer thinking of the place that they had come from. The fact that Abraham particularly made no attempt to go back shows the strength and reality of his faith. Some of us are familiar with the story of Lot's wife. Her heart went back with her eyes. As her eye gazed back, so did her heart. It did not go well for her, right? The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, talks about Demas, right? Going back to the things of this world. Spurgeon said this, true believers know nothing about going back. We are bound to go forward to the better land that is before us. Almighty grace will not permit the people of God to turn aside and find their rest anywhere else. We are bound for the kingdom, and by the grace of God, we shall not rest until we enter it to go out no more forever. There must be no going back, no retreat. Your eyes want to start to turn. Tell them no. Very akin to Joshua, right? Don't, don't swerve to the left, don't swerve to the right. Why? Because eventually your eyes are going to make a 180 and you're going to head back to the sinful place on the outside of the promised land, outside the river. On the other side of the river, outside the promised land. There is no going back. Next, again, keep your eyes always looking forward. Keep your eyes always looking forward, seeking a better country. We are passing through. We are passing through. Now, be careful. I don't think we should understand this as a reason to not care about the place we live or God's rulership in the place we live. We should be careful to not understand this as telling us to just buy our time. That's not what he's telling us. That's not the promise. That's not even being insinuated here. I would encourage you to think of it more like this, that we are passing through the evil kingdom while establishing God's kingdom one block at a time. And eventually, we'll get to that city. I recently undertook the project of adding water lines to my farm and resurrecting a beautiful 25-foot hand-dug rock-lined well from the 1800s. Just to look at the, the, I mean, the fact that someone was down there with a shovel, digging, putting that in a bucket, and someone hoisting that up so they could have water. 
as I was working on running water lines out to the cows and stuff, I didn't say, well, you know, I'm just passing through and one day I'll have water for my cows and for my garden. But instead, I put my hand to the plow and faith became sight. I think that's the the better picture for us to keep in mind here. Where God's people establish God's rule, their God's kingdom begins to shine forth, and one day that will be finished. So my point is this. It's not, like with with Noah, it wasn't, all right, faith that God's going to save me, and then Noah just sat around and waited. What did Noah have to do? One hammer swing after the next. One hammer swing after the next. Abraham, all right, God's going to give me a promised land, and he's going to give me offspring, and he's going to bless the nations through me, through me and, and he's going to make my seed numerous. So I'm going to sit here and wait. I'm not going to plan for tomorrow. I'm not going to do any hard work today. I'm just going to sit around and wait. Is that what happened? What was it? It was one block at a time. It was one step at a time, one hammer swing at a time. What is it for us? One virtue at a time, one piece of knowledge at a time, one ounce of self-control at a time, one day of preparation for the next, one at a time. Laying paths of success for our kids, one step at a time, one devotional at a time, one business at a time, one reclamation of one space under the glory and the lordship of Jesus Christ at a time, one acre at a time, one hammer swing at a time. Keeping your eyes forward. So as, as you seek this better country, because listen, the, the, prevalent, the reason I'm pushing on this is the prevalent view when it comes to this better country is, well, I just need to like, you know, make sure I love God and do some churchy things between now and then. And I'm just going to kind of wait. Sit back with very little preparation for tomorrow. What if, what if Jesus doesn't come back for another 4,000 years. What are you going to do then? Well, God, I thought you were coming back in my kid's lifetime, so I didn't do any work to prepare them. You're going to say that to, well, you know, all those left behind videos I watched convinced me that, I was, that Jesus was definitely coming back when Obama became president. I, listen, it's not going to fly. God's going to say, look, I didn't make that promise to you. Nicholas Cage was not correct. But this, this eyes looking forward, seeking a better country, is your rationale and your motive. What do I mean by that? What makes people spend their lives as those passing through, except that they are headed somewhere dear to their hearts? Abraham lived as a pilgrim here, 
because of his eagerness to have that which can be possessed only by faith and is achieved only in a world that is yet to come. If his home was elsewhere, then it was only natural for Abraham to live the way he did. If our home is coming, then it will only be natural for us to lay one brick at a time. One mundane moment at a time. I would, ask, I would encourage you to ask this question this week, in what ways are you tempted to look backward? In what ways are you tempted to look backward? In what ways are you tempted to be liked by idiots? Or for the fool to accept you? Or to have the things of this world? Are you teaching, where are you tempted to teach your kids that things back in Egypt might be just a little bit better? Where are you tempted to let your kids think that things back in Egypt might, have, might be just a little bit better? The last thing I want you to see is this. God will not be ashamed. God will not be ashamed. It says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. I don't, like, don't let that, like, just float past your ears. God will not be ashamed to be called these, the God of these people. It means that you, as you walk in faith by God's power, supplementing your faith in these ways, that God will not be ashamed to say, I am his God. I am her God. He is mine. She is mine. Now why? Why is this? Why will God not be ashamed? Because these people's faith was in him and nothing else. Let me remind you of Luke 9 from our Lord's words, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Well, what's the inverse of that? Well, those who are not ashamed of him and his words, he will not be ashamed. That's what's happening here in Hebrews. That's, 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 what he's, that's what he's saying. God is saying, those who were not ashamed of my words, I will not be ashamed to be called their God. Noah, I mean, very practically, God said, Noah, I'll save your family while I judge the earth if you build this ark. Noah, not ashamed of God and his words, he built the ark. Therefore, God was not ashamed when the floods came to shut the door behind Noah and his family while everyone else drowned. Now, just hold that verse, this, this Luke verse in the back of your mind for a moment. You need to see two things. I'll, I'll put what I just said in, in maybe a fewer words. In Hebrews, God said, I promise all of this, now go. God used words. Abraham obeyed those words. He believed them. Abraham identified himself not by the home he had left, 
but by the home he was seeking and the God who had called him to it. That's where his faith was. He and his sons were willing to be called men of God instead of men of this world. Jesus, Jesus spoke, and those who identify with him and his words, Jesus will not be ashamed of. Notice the contingency in Hebrews 11. He says, therefore. God spoke. They believed his words. Therefore. God will not be ashamed to be called their God. Those who hear God's words and are not ashamed to do them, God will not be ashamed to be called our God. Also, let the note, also let's note the negative here. God will be ashamed to call a pagan his, and he will not do it. How was in again? How was this demonstrated? How was the faith demonstrated? It was by their hope in a better country. Reminder: Faith is not just hope for something else in the future, but it involves this hope, uh, an action, faith in a better place. And Abraham went to take it. Noah went on to build it. My encouragement to you. Like faith in God's promise of a godly marriage. Go get it. Take the steps. Walk. Faith in God's promise of godly offspring. Go get it. Go walk. Heed his words. Faith in God's promise of a peaceful inner man. Go get it. Lead your family to live with a hopeful and, an, and anticipating contentment. Last thing is this. God has prepared for us a city. God has prepared for us a city. Just three quick things. One, in a sense, it's already prepared. It's done. It's finished. There's a past tenseness to this verse. We're a part of carrying out its already finishedness. Next, it's for us. Don't miss that. I mean, it's ultimately for God's glory, but it's for us that He loves His people, that He is for His people. He was for Abraham, He isn't for those pagans. They're just having a party, not realizing the raging fire that's just outside the door. Even though it seems like their lives are better in some ways. The city is ours. And it will be a place where we will dwell with him. Right? He will not be ashamed to be called our God. That, that, that's, that's a picture of the Old Testament God dwelling with his people. The Shekinah glory of God was present with the Israelites. That meant everything. That's the picture being painted for us here. For he has prepared for us a city. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us in the time between promises fulfilled and those that have yet to be realized. Help us to believe that a promise made is a promise kept. Give us eyes to see past our noses, to greet from afar, to know, to delight in, and to embrace that which is to come. Help us to leave behind our allegiance to the city and the land in which we've come from and embrace fully allegiance to the place where we are headed. And Father, help us by faith to lay one brick, of a, one brick at a time. Father, for your glory, for our good, for the good of our kids and great, 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 great grandkids. Father, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.